Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. Some years ago, a young man wrote to Thomas A. Edison for a position. For some reason, Mr. Edison did not reply. By no means discouraged on this account, the young man made up his mind that he would not only get a reply from Mr. Edison, but that, but what was more important still, he would actually secure the position he sought. He lived a long distance from West Orange, New Jersey, where Edison Industries are located, and he did not have the money with which to pay his railroad fare, but he did have imagination. He went to West Orange in a freight car, got his interview, and told his story in person and got the job he sought. Today, this same man lives in Bradentown, Florida. He has retired from active business, having made all the money he needs. His name, in case you wish to confirm my statements, is Edwin C. Barnes. By using his imagination, Mr. Barnes saw the advantage of a close association with a man like Thomas A. Edison. He saw that such an, an occasion would give him the opportunity to study Mr. Edison, and at the same time it would bring him in contact with Mr. Edison's friends, who are among the most influential people in the world. These are but a few cases in connection with which I have personally observed how men have climbed to high places in the world and accumulated wealth in abundance by making practical use of their imagination. Theodore Roosevelt engraved his name on the tablets of time by one single act during his tenure of office as President of the United States, and after all else he did while in that office will have been forgotten this one transaction will record him in history as a man of imagination. He started the steam shovels to work on the Panama Canal, Every president, from Washington on up to Roosevelt, could have started the canal and it would have been completed, but it seemed such a colossal undertaking that it required not only imagination, but daring courage as well. Roosevelt had both, and the people of the United States have the canal. At the age of 40, the age at which the average man begins to think he is too old to start anything new, James J. Hill was still sitting at the telegraph key at a salary of $30 per month. He had no capital. He had no influential friends with capital, but he did have that which is most more powerful than either, imagination. In his mind's eye, he saw a great railroad, railway system that would penetrate the undeveloped Northwest and unite the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So vivid was his imagination that he made others see the advantages of such a railway system. From there on, the story is familiar enough to every schoolboy. I would emphasize the part of the story that most people never mention, that Hill's great northern railroad system became a reality in his own imagination first. The railroad was built with steel rails and wooden cross ties, just as other railroads are built, and these things were paid for with capital that were secured in very much the same manner that capital for all railroads is secured. 
But if you want the real story of James J. Hill's success, you must go back to that little country railroad station where he worked at $30 a month and there picked up the little threads that wove into a mighty railroad, the materials no more visible than the thoughts which he organized his imagination. What a mighty power is imagination, the workshop of the soul, in which thoughts are woven into railroads and skyscrapers and mills and factories and all manner of wealth. Quote, I hold it true that thoughts are things, they endowed with their bodies and breath and wings, and that we send them forth to fill the world with good results or ill, that which we call our secret thought speeds forth to earth's remotest, remotest spot, leaving its blessings or its woes, life tracks behind it as it goes. We build our future thought by thought, for good or ill, yet know it not. Yet so the universe was wrought, thought is another name for fate. Choose then to die destiny and wait, for love brings love and hate brings hate. End quote. If your imagination is the mirror of your soul, then you have a perfect right to stand before that mirror and see yourself as you wish to be. You have the right to see reflected in the magic mirror the mansion you intend to own, the factory you intend to manage, the bank of which you intend to be president, the station in life you intend to occupy. Your imagination belongs to you. Use it. You, the more you use it, the more effectively it will serve you. At the east end of the Great Brooklyn Bridge is New York City. An old man conducts a cobbler shop. When the engineers began driving stakes and marking the foundation place for that great steel structure, this man shook his head and said, it can't be done. Now he looks out from his dingy little shoe repair shop shakes his head and asks himself, how did they do it? He saw the bridge grow before his very eyes, and still he lacks the imagination to analyze that which he saw. The engineer who planned the bridge saw it in reality long before a single shovel of dirt had been removed from the foundation stones. The bridge became a reality in his imagination because he had trained that imagination to weave the new combinations out of old ideas. Through recent experiments in the Department of Electricity, one of our great educational institutions of America has developed how to put flowers to sleep and wake them up again with electric sunlight. This discovery makes possible the growth of vegetables and flowers without the aid of sunshine. In a few more years, the city dweller will be raising a crop of vegetables on his back porch with the aid of a few boxes of dirt and a few electric lights with some new vegetable maturing every month of the year. This new discovery, plus a little imagination, plus Luther Burbank's discoveries in the field of horticulture, and lo, the city dweller will not only grow vegetables all the year round within the, big, within the confines of his back porch, but he will grow bigger vegetables than any which the modern gardener grows in open sunlight. In one of the cities of the coast of California, all the land that was suitable for building lots had been developed and put into use. On one side of the city, there were some steep hills that could not be used for building purposes. And on the other side of that land was unsuitable for buildings because it was so low that the backwater covered it once a day. A man of imagination came to the city. Men of imagination usually have keen minds, and this man was no exception. 
The first day of his arrival, he saw the possibilities for making money out of real estate. He secured an option on those hills that were unsuitable for use because of their steepness. He also secured an option on the ground that was unsuitable for the use because of the backwater that covered it daily. He secured these options at a very low price because the ground was supposed to be without substantial value. With the use of a few tons of explosives, he turned those steep hills into loose dirt. With the aid of a few tractors and some road scrapers, he leveled the ground down and turned it into a beautiful building lot. And with the aid of a few mules and carts, he dumped a surplus dirt on the low ground and raised it above the water level, thereby turning it into a beautiful building lot. He made a substantial fortune for what? For removing some dirt from where it was not needed to where it was needed. For mixing some useless dirt with imagination. The people of the little city gave this man credit for being a genius, and he was the same sort of genius that any one of them could have been had he used his imagination as this man had used his. In the field of chemistry, it is possible to mix two or more chemical ingredients in such proportions that the mere act of mixing gives each of the ingredients a tremendous amount of energy that it does not possess. It also possible to mix certain chemical ingredients in such proportions that all the ingredients of the combination take on an entirely different nature, as in the case of H2O, which is a mixture of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen creating water. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. Chemistry is not the only field in which a combination of various physical materials can be so assembled that each takes on a greater value, or the result is a product entirely foreign in nature to that of its components. The man who blew up those useless hills of dirt and stone and removed the surplus from where it was not needed over to the lowland where it was needed gave that dirt and stone a value that it did not have before. Ton of pig iron is worth very little. Add to that pig iron, carbon, silicon, manganese, sulfur, and phosphorus in the right proportions, and you have transformed it into steel, which is of much greater value. Add still other substances in the right proportion, including some skilled labor, and the same ton of steel is transformed into watch springs worth a small fortune. But in all these transformation processes, the one ingredient that is worth most of the, is the one that has no material form, imagination. Here lie great piles of loose brick, lumber, nails, and glass. It is present form. It is worse than useless, for it is a nuisance and an eyesore. But mix it with an architect's imagination and add some skilled labor, and lo, it become a beautiful mansion worth a king's ransom. On one of the great highways between New York and Philadelphia stood an old ramshackle, time-worn barn worth less, than worth less than $50. With the aid of a little lumber and some cement plus imagination, this old barn had become turned into a beautiful automobile supply station that earns a small fortune for the man who supplied the imagination. Across the street from my office is a little print shop that earns coffee and rolls for its owner and his helper, but no more. Less than a dozen blocks away stands one of the most modern 
printing plants in the world, whose owner spends most of his time traveling and has far more wealth than he can ever use. 22 years ago, those two printers were in the business together. The one who owns the big print shop had the good judgment to ally himself with a man who mixed imagination with printing. This man of imagination is a writer of advertisements, and he kept the printing plant with which he is associated supply with more business than it can handle by analyzing its client's business, creating attractive advertising features, and supplying the necessary printing material with which to make the features of the service. This plant receives top-notch prices for its printing because the imagination mixed with that printing produces a product that most printers cannot supply. In the city of Chicago, the level of certain Boulevard was raised, which spoiled a row of beautiful residences because the sidewalk was raised to the level of the second-story windows. While the property owners were bemoaning their ill fortune, a man of imagination came along, purchased the property for a song, converted that second stories into business property, and now enjoys a handsome income from, from his rentals. As you read these lines, please keep in mind all that was stated in the beginning of this lesson, especially the fact that the greatest and most profitable thing you can do with your imagination is the act of rearranging old ideas in new combinations. If you properly use your imagination, it will help you convert your failures and mistakes into assets of priceless value. It will lead you to discovery of a truth known only to you, to those who have used their imagination, namely, that the greatest reverses and misfortunes of life often open the door to golden opportunities. One of the finest and most highly paid engravers in the United States was formerly a mail carrier. On the day he was fortunate enough to be on the streetcar that uh, met with an accident and had one of his legs cut off, the street railroad company paid him $5,000 for his leg. With this money, he paid his way through school and became an engraver. The product of his hands, plus his imagination, it's worth much more than he could have ever earned with his legs as a mail carrier. He discovered that he had imagination when it became necessary to redirect his efforts as a result of the streetcar accident. You will never know what is your capacity for achievement until you learn how to mix your efforts with imagination. The products of your hands minus imagination will yield you but a small return, but those self-same hands when properly guided by imagination can be made to earn you all the material wealth you can use. There are two ways in which you can profit by imagination. You can develop this faculty in your own mind, or you can ally yourself with those who have already developed it. Andrew Carnegie did both. He not only made use of his own fertile imagination, but he gathered around him a group of other men who also possessed this essential quality. For his definite purpose in life called for specialists, whose imagination ran in numerous directions. In that group of men, he constituted Mr. Carnegie's, quote, mastermind, where men whose imaginations were confined to the field of chemistry. He had other men in the group whose imaginations were confined to finances. He had still others whose imaginations were confined to salesmanship, one of whom was Charles M. Schwab, who was said to have been the most able salesman on Mr. Carnegie's staff. If you feel that your own imagination is an inadequate, you should form an alliance with someone whose imagination is sufficiently developed to supply your deficiency. There are various forms of alliance. For example, there is an alliance of marriage, 
and the alliance of business partnership, an alliance of friendship, an alliance of employer and employee. Not all men have the capacity to serve their own best interests as employers, and those who haven't this capacity may profit by allying themselves with men of imagination who have such capacity. It is said that Mr. Carnegie made more millionaires of his employees than any other employer in the steel business. Among these were Charles M. Schwab, who displayed evidence in the soundest sort of imagination by his good judgment in allying himself with Mr. Carnegie. It is no disgrace to serve in the capacity of employee. To the contrary, it often proves to be the most profitable side of the alliance since not all men are fitted to assume the responsibility of directing other men. Perhaps there is no field of endeavor in which imagination plays such an important part as it does in salesmanship. The master salesman sees the merits of goods he sells on the service he is rendering in his own imagination, and if he fails to do so, he will not make that sale. A few years ago, a sale was made which is said to have been the most far-reaching important sale of its kind ever made. The object of that sale was not merchandise, but the freedom of a man who was confined in the Ohio Penitentiary and the development of a prison reform system that promises a sweeping change in the method of dealing with unfortunate men and women who have become entangled in the meshes of the law. That you may observe just how imagination plays a leading part in salesmanship, I will analyze this sale for you, with due apologies for the personal references which cannot be avoided without destroying much of the value of the illustration. A few years ago, I was invited to speak before the inmates of the Ohio Penitentiary. When I stopped upon a platform, I saw in the audience before me a man whom I had known as a successful businessman more than 10 years previously, that the man was who whose li- pardon I later secured and the story of whose release has been spread upon the front page of practically every newspaper in the United States. Perhaps you will recall it. After I had completed my address, I interviewed Mr. B and found out that he had been sentenced for forgery for a period of 20 years. After he had told me his story, I said, quote, I will have you out of here in less than 60 days, quote. With a forced smile, he replied, I, re- I admire your spirit, but question your judgment. Why do you know that at least 20 influential men have tried every means at their command to get me released without success? It can't be done. I suppose it was that last remark. It can't be done. The, that challenge showed me, showed challenged me to show him that it could be done. I returned to New York City, requested my wife to pack her trunks and get ready for an indefinite stay in the city of Columbus, where the Ohio Penitentiary is located. I had a definite purpose in mind. That purpose was to get B out of the Ohio Penitentiary. Not only did I have in mind securing his release, but I intended to do in such a way that his release would erase from his breast the scarlet letter of convict, and at the same time reflect his credit upon all who had helped bring about his release. Not only once did I doubt that I would bring about his release, for no salesman can make a sale if he doubts what he, that he can do it. My wife and I returned to Columbus and took up permanent headquarters. The next day, I called the governor of Ohio and stated the object of my visit is in about these words. Governor, I have come to ask you to release B from the Ohio Penitentiary. I have sound reason for asking his release, and I hope you will give him his freedom at once. But I have come prepared to stay until he is released. 
no matter how long that may be. During his imprisonment, B was inaugurated a system of correspondence instruction in the Ohio Penitentiary, as you, of course, know. He has influenced 1,729 of the 218 prisoners of the Ohio Penitentiary to take up courses of instruction. He has managed to bake sufficient textbooks and lesson materials with which to keep these men at work on their lessons and has done this without a penny of expense to the state of Ohio. The warden and the chaplain of the penitentiary tell me that he has carefully observed the prison rules. Surely, a man who can influence 1,729 men to turn their efforts towards their self-betterment cannot be a very bad sort of fellow. I have come to ask you to release B because I wish to place him at the head of a prison school that will give the 116,000 inmates of the other penitentiaries of the United States a chance to profit by his influence. I am prepared to assume full responsibility for his conduct after his release. That is my case, but before you give me your answer, I want you to know that I am not unmindful of the fact that your enemies will probably criticize you if you release him. In fact, if you release him, it may cost you many votes if you run for office again. With a, with his fist clenched and his broad jaw set firmly, Governor Vic Donnelly of Ohio said, If that is what you want would be, I will release him if it costs me 5,000 votes. However, before I sign the pardon, I want you to see the clemency board and secure its favor favorable recommendation. I want you also to secure the favorable recommendation of the warden and the chaplain of the Ohio Penitentiary. You know, a governor is amendable to the court of public opinion, and these gentlemen are representatives of the court. The sale had been made, and the whole transaction had required less than five minutes. The next day, I returned to the governor's office, accompanied by the chaplain of the Ohio Penitentiary, and notified the governor that the clemency board, the warden, and the chaplain all joined in recommending the release. Three days later, the pardon was signed, and B walked through the big iron gates, a free man. I have cited the details to show you that there are nothing difficult about the transaction. The groundwork for the release had all been prepared before I came on this, upon the scene. B had done that. By his good conduct and the service he had rendered those 1,729 prisoners, when he created the world's first prison correspondence school system, he created the key that unlocked the prison doors for himself. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day, and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.